Turn with me in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 5 and 6. We've been teaching on the principles of the doctrine of Christ. We're going to continue that this morning. We are a Bible church. We are not a smoke machine, laser show, TED Talk church. Those things will send you to hell. We're not here to make you feel good. We're not here to tell you how to have your best Friday ever. Uh, one Christian rapper had a song that said, if you're living your best life now, you're headed to hell. I like that lyric pretty good because my Bible promises me persecution and my Bible tells me to take up a cross and both of those don't make for the best life ever, but it makes for a wonderful eternity. So one of the things we've done in America is we've let our, our entertainment, culture, convenient mindset affect the church rather than the church affect the culture. And any time a culture becomes stronger than the church, the church is lost. And we are already there as a nation and as a national church. So our job is to, in a sense, retreat to the Word of God, rekindle the image of Christ, and then go back out and represent it to the world around us. Because this is not about how to have your best Tuesday ever. This is not about how to live your best life now or any of that hokum that is nothing but a TED Talk in a fancy suit. That's not this. This is the gospel where we take upon us the image of Christ. We're anointed of the Holy Ghost, and we preach the gospels that people might be born again. The gospel is that apart from Jesus Christ, you are damned. You are hopeless. You are wretched. You are disgusting. Your existence stenches in the nostrils of God. That's the bad part of the gospel. The good part is you don't have to stink and go to hell. That if you'll repent of your sins, no matter how wretched they are, that the Lord Jesus Christ will wash you, redeem you, receive you to himself, and you can be born again and, and receive the Holy Spirit and go to heaven. So how in the world we in the last 25 years of seeker-friendlyism, purpose-driven malarkey converted the gospel of Christ to some kind of laser show TED Talk with a coffee bar? I don't know, but there's going to be a lot to answer to God for on Judgment Day. In Hebrews chapter 5, going into chapter 6, the author of Hebrews is concerned for this group of believers. And the whole theme of the Hebrew epistle is to make sure they are not retreating into Judaism because we've come out from that. Now, we're not against the law of God or the law of Christ. There are 613 law under the old covenant called the mitzvah. About 280 to 300 of them are repeated in the New Testament, which means we're not free from those. So we hear the common refrain, well, we're not under the law. Okay, well, what do you mean by that? Because you need to clarify that. Because I know I'm not under the law, but I'm not free to murder still. And that's one of the 613 mitzvah. I'm not free to commit adultery, no matter what TBN preachers seem to live. I'm not free to steal, lie, embezzle, perjure, or worship false idols or any idols. So I'm not free from really any of the Ten Commandments. We still keep a Sabbath every day, honestly. Honestly, when you study the New Testament, you'll find there are 1,050 commandments, which is 33% more than the Old Testament. We're that much more freer. The reason we have more law is because we're grown up now, right? We're supposed to be mature, the fullness of the statue of the measure of Christ. And when you're mature, you can handle more rules. When you're a child, you have five rules. Don't flush that down the toilet. <laughs> don't pick your nose. And please don't pull your sister's hair. But when you're 25 you're under a lot more rules. And the higher you go in life, the more rules are applied to you. Someone like the president of the United States, someone like a CEO, has all the rules of their local city and their county and their state and the federal government. And then you get into big corporations. Now they're dealing with international laws. The higher and more mature you are, the more laws are applied to you. And you ought to be able to handle it because you catch the heart of it. 
Only the lawless vagabond says, I'm free from the law. I'm free from the law. Paul even said, I become all things all men that I might win some, yet not without the law unto Christ, which meant to say he was still going to submit to the laws of God. Now, what we do say is that the laws of God do not make us righteous. Righteousness only comes through faith in Christ alone. But the laws of God do teach us what holy looks like. So if you want to know what holy looks like, you follow the laws of God. Like, don't forsake the assembly of yourselves together as the manner of some is, but as, as, uh, so much the more as you see the day approaching. Come together. And you don't lie still. And you don't commit adultery. And you don't fornicate. You know what fornication is? That's sex with someone you're not married to. God calls that an abomination. Sometimes you have to tell people this because they forgot. Because every time you have sex with someone you're not married to, your heart gets attached to them. And then when you separate, they call it conscientious uncoupling. That's a quick way of saying your soul just got burned. Uh, part of your soul goes with that person you gave your body to. The Bible is very clear on this. When you fornicate, you join yourself to that person. What happens if you fornicate with 50 people? You've joined your soul to 50 people, and they walk away with part of your heart, and you're left with memories. Now bring those memories into your marriage. Is she or is she not thinking about lover number 28? Is he or is he not thinking about girlfriend number 17? God knows what he's talking about. Mankind is stupid. We just chase sin. So the laws of God are designed to keep us safe. The laws of God are designed to prosper. So his commandments are not grievous. They're very easy if you want to please God. The problem is this nation doesn't fear God. They fear losing their standard of living. But if you'd keep the law of God, you could have a great standard of living and joy in the midst of it. So Hebrews chapter 5, the author is fearful that the believers are drifting back into Judaism. So one of the themes of Hebrews is we have a better covenant. Why go back? We have a better covenant. Why go back? We have a better covenant. Why go back? So the end of Hebrews chapter 5, he says, when the time has come that you ought to be teachers, which means there's an expectation placed upon every believer to grow up and come to a place where you can teach and have a Bible study and lead a co-worker to Christ and answer your co-workers or your classmates' questions about the Bible. Everybody has a place and time where God looks at you and says, you ought to be a teacher by now, but you're not. That should never be said to us. And one of the things we've proven many times over and over again in our church is that it only takes two, three, four years to go from new believer to disciple maker. If you want to, you can go from, I just got born again, to now I'm entrusted with some form of ministry in less than four years. Jesus Christ took 11 apostles from salty fishermen to apostles in three and a half years. Paul took Titus, excuse me, Timothy from new convert to fledgling missionary in three and a half years. The epistles of Corinthians are written about three years apart, and Paul says, hey, you ought to be mature by now in three years. But what we find out is that Christians grow at the rate they want to grow at, and as long as you're walking at the rate you want to walk at, you're never going to glorify Jesus Christ. You're always capable of a quicker clip. You're always quicker of a, a faster growth. Our little children, they want to hurry up and be an adult. They want to be big boys. They want to be a mommy. They, they want to have a baby. They want to have high heels. They want to hurry up and grow, grow, grow. And we have to tell them, slow down, slow down, slow down. And then something happens in adult Christians. They get born again, and now they want to slow down, slow down. And God says, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. We must grow. So he says, you ought to be, but you have become as one that needs to be taught the first principles of the oracles of God. I'm in Hebrews 5:12. You become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. We've said it every service now. Milk is the hearing, but meat is the doing. We've often kind of 
captured this understanding that milk is simple teaching. Well, there's nothing really simple about the Scripture, and yet everything is pretty simple about the Scripture. So it's not just about complex doctrine versus simple doctrine. Because in the end, it doesn't matter how deep you can get hermeneutically or with typology or shadows. If you don't know Christ, you're going to hell. So the simplicity of Christ saves you. So we often think, well, that's strong meat. That's some strong, heavy meat. We've kind of misapplied that in our cultural understanding of what meat is versus what milk is. But Jesus Christ gave us the interpretation in John 4 after he evangelized the Samaritan woman at the well. He said, my meat is to do the will of my Father. So that gives us an interpretive clue here. So milk, by the sincere milk grow thereby, milk is just hearing, hearing. But Jesus said, my meat is to do. The second you convert your hearing to doing, which is what James 1 encourages us to do, you convert milk to meat. But if you hear the word and don't do it, you're deceived. So he's honestly saying, you guys are deceived. All you do is hear. Here, 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 here. Listen, 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 take more notes. Listen, 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 take more notes. And listening is great and taking notes is wonderful, but are you ever going to do? Because the second you stop doing, you begin to shrink back, which is the theme of Hebrews. Do not shrink back. Verse 13 says, For everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, or for he is a babe. Unskillful, that means uh, you have no experience. Well, experience comes by doing. Experience comes by doing. Every time you come to church, something's going to be taught. Every time you hear a radio program, something's going to be taught, and the Holy Spirit is going to convict you of something or poke you at something or say, that's for you, or you need to make that adjustment. That is the one thing or three things out of that sermon you are responsible for. And if you don't begin to do that, you will deceive yourself. And I've tried to give you a little bit of a grace in understanding in that If I teach for an hour this morning, you're not going to be able to remember everything I say, nor will the Holy Spirit emphasize every word of what I say to you so that you write it down. But there'll be two or three things, four things, maybe a fifth thing. That's what the Lord's going to nail you on, and that's what you need to work on. If you don't do it, you will remain inexperienced in the word of righteousness. And God doesn't want any of us to be inexperienced. It is possible to come to church 20 years, hit every service, have reams and reams and reams of notes, and still be inexperienced. And that would be a shame. But that is why the American church is shrinking rapidly. And remnant churches are becoming little islands in seas of darkness. Don't let that be your testimony. Verse 14, But strong meat belongs to them that are of full age or mature, even those who by reason of use, there's that doing again, by reason of use, have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Chapter 6, verse 1 continues, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, or as we said last week, the ABCs of Messianic teaching. What we're about to continue with this morning are the ABCs of Messianic teaching, the ABCs of Christianity. And Paul, or whoever wrote Hebrews, is complaining to the Hebrews that you have forgotten your ABCs. And it's possible for us as Christians to forget our ABCs. A lot in the nation have because they've, they've left them to have laser shows and TED Talks. They've left the gospel of Christ that they might be woke and social activists. They've left the gospel of Christ, prayer, intercession, and evangelism that they might do feel-good yard duty. They've left the ABCs of Christianity, of Messianic teaching. And Paul, or the writer of Hebrews, again, we don't know who it is for sure, 
He says, let us therefore leave the principles of the doctrine of Christ. Let us go on unto perfection. It is maturity, not laying again the foundation. So these six principles are the foundation that is collectively called the doctrine of Christ. There are only six foundation stones. We would say the seventh is Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. This is upon which we build our faith in Christ. And yet, even as I study this, and I've studied this over and over again since college, I recognize we don't know it like we think we should. But every one of us ought to be able to hold a Bible study and teach these six principles. It, it ought to be a good challenge for some of you to find a coworker and say, hey, let's meet every couple, let's meet once a week for the next couple weeks. Let's talk about the six principles of the doctrine of Christ. And just see if you can teach it. Because if this is your foundation, how do you know whether you're built upon it unless you can teach it or not? Do you live it? I don't know what we think church is about. This is not entertainment. Our culture teaches us to experience everything in life as entertainment. Social media has made all of us content producers. Let's pause and just kind of rip our culture to shreds here because it's infected every one of us like gangrene. We are taught by the American culture that anywhere there are seats pointed in one single direction, that entertainment is about to take place. We go to concerts and seats are pointed in one direction. We're to be entertained. We go to the theater. Seats are pointed in one direction. We're to be entertained. We go to a TED Talk or the classroom and all the seats are pointed in one direction. We're to be entertained and to receive entertainment. We've even taken that with social media, and at the birth of our children, we're, we're, we're thinking out how to make this out of an entertainment content, not enjoy the moment of our child being birthed. And so we film the thing and put it on social media. And we are, we are producing entertaining content out of our whole life rather than stopping and actually enjoying it. Like you social media middle-class white moms who take a thousand pictures of your imperfect kids, throw a thousand filters on it, hate your wife, hate your husband, hate your three kids, but post it up there, hashtag my life. You're a fraud. Total fraud. And everybody who can't see your fraudulence wants to have your life, but you want everybody else's life. It's this weird race to the bottom. So... When we come to church, because we're so entertainment trained, we don't see this as a time to be discipled and trained and equipped. This is a time to laugh. This is a time to take a note. This is a time to receive a, a, a TED Talk moment, a little nugget for life, something that will improve my Thursday afternoon, and you'll totally miss the purpose of the gospel being preached. I will remind you, the people in the Bible, the men of God in the Bible, when they preached, sometimes most of their congregation wanted to kill them. And you think me calling you stupid is offensive. And you think, my wife said, boy, that Wednesday night service was hard. I said, yeah. She said, you use the word whore five or six times. The Bible uses the word whore way more than that. One of my favorite prophetic insults from Ezekiel is he tells Israel, you are worse than an ass in heat. Does that offend you? how God saw his people. What's an ass in the heat? Just wanting to have sex with anything. And he says, and you won't have to travel far. They'll all come and do you. Then he said, you're a whore. No, the Lord says, you're worse than a whore because a whore gets paid. 
That's how God talks to his people. Now, wonder they wanted to kill Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah and Jesus Christ. And what do we have in America? We have smiling Bob winking at his congregation, telling them how God is for them. With his curly little mullet. I'm sorry, that's an ad hominem attack on, care, on personality. God's not interested in giving you your best Tuesday ever. He wants you to give him your best. Why is this always about us getting our best from God and not about us giving our best to God? It's heresy. But boy, doesn't it make people feel good. I'm going to church because I need some encouragement. You're coming to church for the wrong reason. We come to church because God calls us to church to be trained by him, to worship him, to be in his presence so he can touch our lives so we can go give it to him. If you come for any other reason, you're a dupe, you're a fool, and you're probably on your way to hell. And this is not the church for you. So back to Hebrews 6. Let's find this foundation. It is a foundation. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works. So here's our foundation stone. We covered it three weeks ago. Not laying again the foundation stone of repentance from dead works. Dead works aren't just sinful acts. Dead works are good things you do with the wrong motive. Dead works is you going evangelizing and posting it on social media, hashtag evangelism. That's a dead work. You had your reward. Anything you get your reward for now is a dead work. Jesus Christ taught against dead works in the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7. He says, when you fast, don't do it like this. When you give offerings, don't do it like this. When you pray, don't do it like this. Because everything they were doing was a good work, but their attitude was making it a dead work. Dead works is you coming to church and doing everything without joy. Joy is a necessary ingredient to make a dead work a good work. And the Bible tells us over 27 times in the New Testament to maintain good works. So works are important. We don't work to get saved, but we maintain good works because we are saved because the kingdom doesn't get built by a bunch of lazy, entertainment-driven Christians. Second foundation stone was a faith toward God. We looked at that last week. Faith toward God, it doesn't say faith in God. Because even the, the demons believe and tremble. Demons are better than a lot of Christians because demons think about God and they tremble. We think about God and how we're going to command him to bless me or how to save me out of that mess I made again. God is not here to be your continuous life preserver. If you'd walk with God, he would have to constantly throw you a bone. Some Christians only come to God when they have a mess they've made upon them. And they make these vows, these rash vows that they never intend to keep. Oh, God, if you'll save me, I'll serve you. Oh, God, if you'll turn this situation, I'll give you my life. And they never mean it. So their vows are unkept, and God is mocked in their heart. Faith toward God changes you. Faith toward God takes you from where you are today and puts you further in the gospel, further in the kingdom, makes you a different person. Christians who can come to church and stay the same in their attitude, in their temptation, in their weakness, in their flesh, they don't have a faith toward God because a faith toward God will not leave you the same. It's going to change you. All of this, the whole theme of this passage is change. Not going back, going forward with better in Christ. That brings us to this third point that we're looking at this morning, the doctrine of baptisms. So that's what, this is what we're going to focus on, the doctrine of baptisms. We should pause and think baptisms. Wait, I thought there was only one baptism. Well, it depends on what denomination you were brought up in. 
Ephesians 4 does tell us there's one God, one faith, one baptism. If Paul says there's one baptism, but Hebrews says there's baptisms, we have to rectify the tension between the two. There is one baptism into Christ, but there's a doctrine of baptisms. In fact, as we kind of gave you a uh, sneak preview last week, there are five baptisms in the New Testament. Only one of them doesn't apply to us. The other four, we ought to live every day. Most Christians could name one or two at most. Some Christians have built their entire denomination upon one baptism, and we need to make sure we're well balanced. If the Bible talks about five baptisms, we ought to understand them, especially if it's a principal doctrine, especially if it's one of our critical foundation stones. I, having been now serving God in the ministry in some capacity for over 20 years now, having been spirit-filled for 25 years and having always run in Christian circles, I, I always am amazed how we as Christians get set up on one doctrine and we make one doctrine our like go-to doctrine. It's the doctrine we're willing to die on and it's usually not the cross. It's young earth creationism. It's water baptism. It's, it's baptism in Jesus' name only. It's Amillennialism, postmillennialism, premillennialism, post-tribulation rapturism. It's tongues. It's not tongues. It's whatever. It's amazing how we make idols out of doctrines, and usually they're not even found in these principal stones here. So this is a powerful passage because it tells us what to emphasize. So doctrine of baptisms. Doc, uh, baptism number one. John's baptism. Let's look at some scriptures. I've quoted a bunch to you, but let's look at some scriptures. Let's go to Luke chapter 3. Let's study the Bible a little bit. We don't put all of our scriptures on the overhead because we don't want you ignorant. We do occasionally do a sermon or two with a PowerPoint. We'll have one verse or two verses I'll throw up in the New Living Translation in a moment, but I want you to be in your Bible. I would also say I do not recommend you study your Bible on an app. There's something about holding paper. I use an app. I'm always on my phone looking at Greek and Hebrew and other translations, so I'm not against it as a study tool, but as your own personal Bible, an iPad is horrible. Because what happens if your battery dies? There's just something about holding paper. I don't believe we'll have iPads in heaven. I do know there is paper in heaven. <laughs> there are scrolls. I really don't hope we have to do this with the scroll to find our favorite passage. Then again, maybe the Lord will have written every scripture on our heart by then. But I just can't see us in heaven on an iPad studying the scriptures. Can you? Use it as a tool, but don't let it be your backbone. Luke chapter 3, verse 3. And he came into all the country about Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Verse 7, Then said he to the multitude that came forth to be baptized of him, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance, and begin not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father, for I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Every tree therefore which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire." What a not-feel-good message. You're trying to get people to come to your, your water baptism service, and you're telling them God's going to hack you down and burn you in hell. Who, he calls them vipers. Imagine calling your whole congregation vipers and brood of scorpions. And who, How are you so smart to know judgment's coming? This is how John the Baptist preached. Again, they cut his head off. They didn't like his message. 
He convicted people. He didn't make them feel good. Our culture is perverse. We think it's all about us. That is why mostly girls are so addicted to social media. They cheapen themselves. They take inappropriate pictures of themselves. They post it on social media so a bunch of strangers can gawk at it and give them a thumbs up. Let me tell you, sweetie, you are worth more than that. You don't need strangers who don't care about you giving you a thumbs up for you to have any value. But people are so insecure, they'll look to a stranger who doesn't care about them for affirmation. If you'd have a walk with God, you wouldn't need that continuous affirmation. You'd go to your prayer closet, and God's presence would come upon you when you called out to him, and you'd walk out feeling like a million bucks, no matter what the world says about you. It's amazing. We traded the Holy Ghost for social media. The Holy Ghost was meant to be our comforter, and now strangers giving us thumbs and hearts on social media. That's our comforter. I wonder if that's idolatry. There's that first commandment being violated. The baptism of repentance, that's John's baptism. He was preparing Israel for the coming Messiah. And his message was hard, and it was one of change. In a sense, he was saying, don't get in this water unless you mean it. Don't get in this water because everybody else is. Don't get in this water because it's the trendy religious thing to do. Get in this water if you mean it. And then once you come out, you better prove through a changed lifestyle that you meant it. Otherwise, God's going to hack you down at the roots and burn you. I don't think it was an exciting service. I think it was fearful. And we've lost that. I'm all for fun and I'm all for joy. But where's our reverence for God? Our nation does not fear God. We fear losing the standard of living we've come to enjoy. But if we could fear God, we might be able to maintain a wonderful, blessed standard of living. But you've got to fear God first. Acts chapter 13. The one of the five baptisms that do not apply to us anymore. Acts chapter 13, verse 24, tells us very explicitly... When John had first preached before his coming, the Lord's coming, the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And he said, and as of John fulfilled his course, he said, Whom think ye that I am? I am not he. But behold, there cometh one after me whose shoes of, feet, uh, shoes of his feet I am not worthy to loose. John's baptism was a preparation baptism, and we are not called to it. But it does set the precedent. So I want you to know that. It's the only one of the five that doesn't apply to us. And so some of you, your mind might be scratching, right? So there's four more baptisms that do? Yes. Baptism number two. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Baptism number two is what the Bible calls baptism into Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Five doctrines of baptism. You need, I want you to see it with your eyes because I'm not just making this stuff up. This is the only baptism that needs to take place to get you into heaven. I know we have local denominations that are very dogmatious on water baptism. I would only ask, is there magic in the water? What makes your baptism service different than the municipal pool? Or taking a bath? If there's no faith applied, what's the point of water baptism? But we'll get to water baptism next. This is baptism into the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. 
For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body. Whose body is that? The Lord Jesus' body. This is the baptism into the body of Christ. This is what we would call being born again. If any man be in who? Christ. It's baptized. We're submerged. The, the word baptized is the Greek baptizo, baptisma, and it means to submerge. It was always used to apply to dyeing a garment. In, uh, you would submerge it. This is why we disagree with the body of Christ that sprinkles, because there's no allowance in the Greek to sprinkle. I know some Calvinists did. I know Lutherans do. I know Catholics do. I know Methodists do. But when the word means to submerge, why would you not submerge? And I don't know why they went the sprinkle route. Maybe it was a cold winter and they didn't want to break the ice, so they developed this habit. Somebody could probably educate me on it. I was raised Southern Baptist. So you know they got a good hold on baptism. <laughs> the word baptism means to be submerged into and being applied to dyeing and fab, uh, uh, manufacturing of textiles. When it comes up, it's totally different. And the whole purpose of being baptized into the body of Christ is you are submerged into Christ's body and you're totally different. We could make the theological argument if you claim to have been born again, and thereby baptized in the body of Christ, but you're the same, you haven't truly been baptized in the body of Christ. Because if I take a white sheet and I have a, a giant tub of purple dye, and I put that white sheet, I baptize that white sheet into that dye, even if it's just but for a moment and bring it up, it's not going to be dove white. It will show the effects of the dye on its very fiber. And if we've been baptized in the body of Christ through the new birth, through being born again, through calling on the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, we ought to be different. The old man should have passed away. We don't even have the same color anymore. We're a new color, a new creed. We're washed with the blood of the Lamb. That's how it ought to be. Amen. So he says, for if, uh, by one spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we are Jews or Gentiles. Whether, did you notice it didn't say black or white? Only two categories of people before they're born again. Jews, then everybody else. And now that you've got the body of Christ, you have a third category. Jew, Gentile, and born again ones. You can see how Marxism wants to chop us up like the slap chop. Chop, 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 chop. So that now we have what's called intersectionality and everybody just identifies as whatever they want to. So I did see a funny meme this weekend. It said, basically, if a, a lesbian transitions to a man, are they a beacon of heroics and courage, or are they now the oppressor? Because now they're a white man. That's how stupid our nation is. That's how retarded our academics are. So a woman wants to transition to a man. She has a double mastectomy, takes testosterone to her clitoris, grows a little weird penis, takes beard hormones. She's a beacon of courage, but now she identifies as a white man. Isn't that the oppressor right now? As a scientist, I just can't but cringe at the inconsistency of their standards. So let me push this a little further just to awaken you 
There's nothing natural about a woman taking testosterone to the point that she grows a beard and her clitoris grows into a little mushroom-looking penis. Do you think that's normal? I think that person needs help. They, they, they're looking for something, and they're not going to find it with the UN calling you women non-trans women. Because now trans people have more rights than the genetic norm. When you're woke, woke is not about your black rights. Woke is about trans rights and teaching your children how to be gender confused by four. So please, if you're black, if you're African American, don't fall into that crazy soup. Because it's not about you. You're just meat for the grinder. That's all you are. You're just meat for the grinder. That's the whole reason the term BIPOC, black, indigenous, and everybody else is just a people of color. I'd be offended if I was a POC. <laughs> All right, I just want to keep you up to speed because we're not going that route. We pray in tongues. We cast out demons. Marriages between one man and one woman. You can call me a hater. I don't hate anybody. There's no phobia here. Jew, Gentile, born again. That's all there is. Back to our subject of water baptism. Thought I forgot. I didn't. I just want to keep washing the world off of you. It is interesting. The longer a lesbian stays a lesbian, the more she looks like an old man. Have you ever noticed? Shut up, Sarah. Have you ever noticed? <laughs> Tim Cook is starting to look like Ellen DeGeneres, and Ellen DeGeneres is starting to look like Tim Cook. And if we take those two line plots and they cross, do we tear a hole in the space-time continuum? That's the effects of sin. Makes a woman look like a man and a man look like an ugly woman. What's normal about that? Hippos don't do that. Baptism. Well, come on, help me stay on target here. <laughs> We're baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ so that when you're born again, you are now part of one body, a body made up of Jews, Gentiles, Africans, Asians, South Americans, Latinos, Anglicans, or Anglos, all over the world, Slavics. We're one body now, and it's a beautiful thing. Romans 6 then, knowing that water bapt excuse me, baptism into the body of Christ is the baptism when there is but one baptism, Romans 6 takes on a whole new meaning when it says in verse 3, Know you not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ. It doesn't say baptized into water. It says baptized into Jesus Christ. Now, it's a famous passage for water baptism, but the context has nothing to do with water, just to be clear. Don't you know so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ, Paul, the author of that, also wrote 1 Corinthians 12, 13 that we just read. He's continuing with the same theological thought. When you're born again, and you call upon the name of Jesus, the Holy Ghost takes you and puts you into the body of Christ. And when we're baptized into the body of Christ, it says we are baptized into his death. We are not our own anymore. We live a perpetual death sentence. Our life is not our own. We crucify our flesh, Paul said, daily. 
Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. That is, if any man be in Christ, old things have passed away. This is talking again about being born again. That the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Getting dunked in municipal water in a plexiglass or fiberglass baptismal font does not put to death the body of sin. But being baptized into the body of Christ through the new birth is the supernatural element that does it. This is the one baptism that matters. We're all for water baptism. That's our next point. And it's critical and you ought to do it. And it's supernatural. But it is not baptism into the body of Christ. It is baptism into water. So the other thing we can see with this is that in John's baptism, John and his disciples baptized you for repentance. In the baptism into the body of Christ, it says the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit takes you and puts you in the body of Christ. Water baptism is different than that because water baptism is a believer in Christ putting you into water. So we, all, we have different things going on at every baptism. Point number three is water baptism. Let's go to Matthew 28 because I want to get to the best baptism, in my opinion, which is the Holy Ghost once you've been born again. Matthew 28. All of these point to change. John's baptism pointed towards change. Baptism into the body of Christ sets you free from the body of sin. That henceforth you should not serve sin. That means you ought to be changing. If you're born again, you're able. If you've been made part of the body of Christ, you're able to beat sin. You can't say, I just try so hard. Keep doing it. I just, I just, it's just so hard. It didn't say it was going to be easy. It said with God, all things were possible. Not all things were easy. Your Americanism has taught you that everything should be easy. And if it's not easy, well, then you shouldn't have to do it. And that's not how it is. Serving God is hard. Serving God is hard. If it was easy, you wouldn't need the Holy Ghost to do it. Serving God is hard. Putting your flesh under is hard. Being faithful to God is hard. But if you walk with the Spirit of God, it becomes very possible. Quit living like Cookful, wanting everything easy. Quit living like America, wanting everything handed to you. This thing takes work. Matthew 28. Let's talk about water baptism here. Huh. Verse 18, Jesus came and spake unto them, Matthew 28, 18, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, that is to make disciples of them, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you alway, even unto the end of the world. This is what we call the Great Commission. Go to Mark 16 as a secondary verse to this. Matthew 28 tells us to teach all nations and baptize them. Mark 16, 15. Hopefully you're taking notes because these are principal doctrines. You need to know them. Mark 16, verse 15. And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. So Matthew 28 tells us to teach and make disciples. This tells us to preach and make converts. We put the two together and we have the great commission. The commission is win the lost, make disciples. 
Win the lost, make disciples. Win the lost, make disciples. A lot of churches just want to make disciples. Some evangelists just want to make converts. We have to do both. We have to win the lost, and once we've won them to Christ, we got to disciple them. Discipleship takes place one-on-one. It takes place in a Sunday school. It takes place in a local church. It takes place in a home Bible study. It takes place with you putting somebody under your arm and coming in to check on them and bringing them to your house. Every one of you ought to have disciples in your life that you have trained for the gospel. That's the great commission. Win the lost, then make a disciple. We often win the lost, and then we leave them to their own devices. You can't do that with a natural baby. You can't give birth to a baby and just say, all right, you're on your own now. That baby has to be cared for very closely uh, for, I don't know, 17 years. And even then you think, you're not going to make it. (laughs) You are not going to make it. Put another 17 in. Hope for the best. It's our current generation. Our Zoomers will be at home until they're 45, apparently. Don't be that way. The greatest generation went to fight World War II at 16. Our kids build Minecraft worlds at 16. (laughs) Yay. (laughs) We had POWs in Japanese camps who at 17 were building transistor radios out of coconuts and smuggled parts from Filipino prostitutes. And our 17-year-olds, they're just trying to level up on World of Warcraft (laughs) and do the newest TikTok video. I mean, we're we're in a hurt in 20 years. (laughs) Amen. So he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. I understand all the doctrinal differences on water baptism. The Church of Christ, who are one of the prominent strongholds of our region, they believe that if you're not water baptized in their church, you'll go to hell. I don't read that out of that passage. I read, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. It doesn't say he that believeth not and is baptized not. What if you get baptized but you don't believe? You just got wet. Water baptism is important. Both verses on the Great Commission tell us to baptize. We make a convert. We baptize for the remission of sins. There is a supernatural thing that takes place. In Africa, many times when you baptize, demons come out of people. There's something about a a, a muddy water, the Niger River, some, some weird river somewhere else in Africa. It doesn't matter that there's fish in there and trash in there and animal excrement. It's not the water. It's the obedience to Christ and the anointing of God that comes upon them, whether it's municipal water or frozen pond water or the local pool water. The power of God goes into operation at water baptism, and you should follow in the Lord's baptism because he commands us to do so. Miss Vera, who's in heaven now, she would always tell me the story. She was died in her 60s, but she got born again in our church, and Pastor Vaughn baptized her over there in the water baptismal. And she said she went down in the water, and when she came up and she turned around, she said the water was jet black. And she knew it was things being washed off of her body, off of her life, not her body, but her life. And she said, I knew it was the Holy Spirit letting me see that. She said, and I could tell Pastor Vaughn saw the same thing because his eyes got big. He saw the water turn black with her as well. Supernatural thing. I've never seen it personally but you need to know it is an important thing. But I will take a hard stand that water baptism does not save you. Peter says it's not the washing or the putting away the filth of the flesh that saves you, but the answer of a good conscience toward God, which like figure baptism even now doth save. It's not this water baptism because there's no power in water. There's power in the obedience to Christ. We got other folks, United Pentecostal folks, they believe you need to be water baptized on the spot. And their baptismal is always full always heated, chlorinated, because if you get saved, you're getting dunked then and there. 
I believe you should be discipled before you get water baptized, as according to Philip the Evangelist and the Ethiopian eunuch. Then you got folks that want to split hairs on Jesus' name, Jesus' name only, or God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost. How about we just all take a breather, step back, get you discipled, tell you that baptism is important, teach you the importance of it, dunk you in the name of Jesus, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we just cover every scripture at once. Why just do one or two and take them out of context? And we can just lump them all together and hold you down for a minute or two. Make sure it sticks, then bring you up. But this is the water baptism. Everybody's familiar with this. Um, Look at Acts chapter 2. It is part of the gospel message. It needs to be preached. You ought to be water baptized. Uh, We often remind you that in Muslim countries, that when Muslims convert to Christianity, and even in some Indian country, uh, Indian states uh, among Hindus, they don't take the news of the conversion accurate or faithful or, or real until they get word that the convert has been water baptized. And in some Muslim countries, to be water baptized is a death sentence. Because at that point, the Muslims, not all, we don't want to paint up all the Muslims with the broad picture, but many be, uh, engage in the honor killings, which I think we've all heard of, where a father or an uncle will kill a daughter for, for being married to a non-Muslim or for converting to Christianity, or a brother or a son will be killed. Uh, for many Muslims, the second they get water baptized, it's a declaration of true faith, and their families will hunt them down until they are murdered for denying Muhammad. That doesn't sound like a religion of peace to me. For us, if you convert and go to paganism, we just pray for you till you repent. We don't hunt you down and kill you. Your sin will do that for us. Wages of sin is death, right? All right. You still trying to make me swinky, blinky, and mullety? You feel awesome? Serve God, you'll feel like a million bucks. The reason you feel horrible is because you're a carnal pig. Yes. All right, let's, let's apply it this way. I went for a run this morning. Didn't want to go for a run this morning. It was muggy this morning. I was sore from Friday's workout. But I got up and run, ran. Felt horrible. But when I got done, felt like a million bucks. Or I could sit at home, eat a whole bunch of ho-hos, ding-dongs, and cinnamon toast crunch for breakfast, chase it down with a Mountain Dew, feel awesome in the moment, and then feel like a slob 20 minutes later. That's how Christianity works. Be disciplined, serve God, you'll feel like a million bucks even when it hurts. Or live in the moment of pleasure and always feel filthy. It's easy. If you're looking for hope, repent. It will catch up with you. Hope will wash all over you. But as long as you live dirty, you'll always be hopeless. Acts 2, 38, Then Peter said unto the crowd, Repent! And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children, to uh, all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received the word were baptized. And the same day they were added unto them about 3,000 souls. If you remember the sermon, he said, You're all a bunch of murderers. You killed Christ. You mocked God's Savior. And it's all your fault. He did not tell them how to have a best Sabbath day ever. And they repented. They said, You're right. You're right. What must we do to be saved? 
So many other verses I want to exhort you on. Look at Acts chapter 19. Show you the difference here. Because I want to hurry up and get to the baptism of the Holy Ghost, which is where we're going to freak out some of you. If you didn't know, you're in a tongue-talking church. We don't handle snakes unless they're Church of Christ deacons. Huh. That's not fair. Because there's been some Pentecostal ones that were pretty snaky as well. And Baptists. Acts chapter 19. <laughs> Verse 1. It came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus and finding certain disciples. Well, wait, so we're not converts. We're disciples. They're disciples. They're born again. They've been baptized into the body of Christ. They are disciples. They don't need to be one to Christ. They are Christians. And he said unto these disciples, Have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. Did you know you can be born again and just be totally ignorant of how the whole thing works? Sure. Praise God. But you don't stay ignorant. And he said unto them, Unto them, what were you baptized? And they said, Unto John's baptism. So they're kind of out of style. They're born again, but all they know is John's baptism. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So we've got John's baptism in play, baptism into the body of Christ, and now they've just received what we call the believer's baptism or the, uh, the Lord's baptism, water baptism. So we see three baptisms, but then something happens, which brings us to our fourth baptism. That is the Holy Ghost baptism. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. He asked in verse two, have you received the Holy Ghost? They said, we didn't know there was a thing. They were born again. So the work of the Holy Ghost had been in their life. They weren't baptized in water yet, and they hadn't received the baptism of the Holy Ghost. So the case in point that's very clearly seen here is that there are three different baptisms available to every believer. Of course, what makes you a believer in the first place is baptism into the body of Christ. Then we follow the Lord in believer's baptism, water baptism for the remission of our sins as a public testimony of our faith in Christ and our burial with him and our soon and coming resurrection. But then there's this thing called the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Now, just for time's sake, we'll turn to one passage, but all four gospels quote John the Baptist saying, I baptize you with water, but there's one greater than me coming that will baptize you in the Holy Ghost. Let's look at Matthew's version real quick. Matthew 3.11. I want you to know as a believer that just because you're born again does not mean you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean you don't have the Holy Spirit. And this is where I will rile up Baptists and Presbyterians because they'll say, you're saying I don't have the Holy Spirit. Absolutely not. I'm saying you don't have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I was raised Southern Baptist. I got born again Southern Baptist. I got water baptized Southern Baptist. I got spirit filled in Pentecost. And I would say probably 98% of you speak in tongues, so you understand there is a distinction between being born again and having the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Matthew 3, 11, uh, John the Baptist said, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Now, here's an interesting fact. 
That statement right there is one of the few statements that is quoted almost identical in all four of the synoptic gospels. If you know the gospels well, you know Matthew, Mark, and Luke very closely parallel most of their stories. John is a gospel that's way out of sorts in that it was written about 50 years after the other gospels. So he comes at things from a totally different perspective. He mentions hardly any miracles at all. He hardly ever mentions the devil at all. And it's all about Jesus, the word made flesh. So it's interesting that other than the crucifixion and resurrection, one of the things all four synoptics cover is that Jesus Christ is the Holy Ghost baptizer. John doesn't cover the nativity story. There's a lot of things John doesn't cover. But this is one of those few things that it shares in line with the other synoptics. That ought to tell us it's important. Along with the resurrection of Christ... He has this insight. In fact, John's gospel tells us in John 7 about John chapter 3 and John chapter 4 and John chapter 7 all talk about water wells and then rivers of life. Water well with with, uh, uh, Nicodemus. There'll be a a well of salvation. The woman at the well, John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman. If you knew how, who was talking to you, you'd ask of me, I'd give you living water. It'll come out of you like a well. Then John 7 talks about, if you'll believe on me, out of your belly shall flow rivers of living water. And there's a big difference between having a well of salvation and rivers of living water coming out of you. So look at John, into John chapter 20. Something else John's gospel adds about this baptism of the Holy Spirit. Because where everybody always locks down, all the non-tongue talkers always lock down and say, you're saying I don't have the Holy Spirit. No, you do have the Holy Spirit. But there's a huge difference scripturally between having the Holy Spirit in you and having the Holy Spirit upon you. There's a big difference in having the Holy Spirit within you through the new birth, through being a new creature, through having the graces of God upon your life, and then having the Holy Ghost come upon you. John chapter 20, verse 22. And when he had said this unto his disciples, he breathed on them and said unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Except this is way before Pentecost. So he breathes on his disciples, says, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. And then he says, But stay in Jerusalem till you be endued with power from on high. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. So what we're seeing is the baptism of the Holy Ghost being foretold. They have received the Holy Spirit. Most theologians believe that's when the disciples got born again. But you come over to Acts chapter 1, verse 4. We're covering a lot of scripture this morning because this is not a TED talk. This is you learning doctrine. Everything I'm saying this morning, you ought to be able to teach your neighbor, like your next door neighbor, your cubicle neighbor, that guy on the factory line that's interested in what you're saying. You ought to be able to run them through all these scriptures yourself. Acts chapter 1, verse 4. And being assembled together with them, Jesus commanded them they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, You have heard of me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. That's what Jesus, he's quoting what John said, and Jesus is quoting John because they're about to be baptized in the Holy Ghost. They're all born again. He's breathed on them, but being born again and being baptized in the Holy Ghost is 40 days apart. Two different experiences. Acts chapter 2, actually let's look at Acts 1.8. But you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. He's telling this to the disciples. The Holy Ghost is in them, but the Holy Ghost is about to come upon them. They're about to be baptized by Jesus into the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost had baptized them into the body of Christ. 
Someone was going to take them and baptize them into water, but now we see Jesus is about to take them and baptize them into the Holy Ghost. Acts 2.1, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting, and there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire that sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This is what Jesus meant in and when he said in verse 5, chapter 1, 5, you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. The Holy Ghost came upon them and filled them, and they were able to pray in the Holy Ghost, as we call her, speak in tongues. You see this pattern fulfilled? Go to Acts 8. You're listening so well. Some of you, this is a review. Some of you, you're going, I don't know what in the world they're even talking about. But let's zoom out real quick. This is a foundational stone doctrine of baptisms. We've covered John's. We've covered the believer's baptism into the body of Christ. We've covered water baptism. Now we're covering the baptism of the Holy Ghost. These are foundational stones. What if you don't have this stone? What spans the gap in your foundation? Acts chapter 8, verse 12. This is a revival at Samaria. But when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized. So they believed and were baptized. Does that mean they're saved? Yeah, according to Mark, it does. Believe and be baptized. You're saved. They believed and were baptized, both men and women. Then Simon himself believed also. That's the sorcerer. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. Now when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John, who when they were come down, because Jerusalem is higher elevation-wise than Samaria to the north, when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. Wait. They believed. That's baptism into the body of Christ. They were water baptized, which is baptism into water to follow the Lord's example. But they don't have the Holy Ghost yet. Is that because they're Samaritans and God's racist? No. They were come down. They prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. For as yet he was fallen upon none of them. Only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So these Samaritans were born again. They were in the body of Christ. They were water baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus but if you're born again, you've received the Holy Spirit. And if you're water baptized, you've been baptized for the remission of your sins, but they still don't have the Holy Ghost. It's not my doctrine. It's Luke's doctrine. He wrote Acts, but he's fulfilling what the apostles taught. Verse 17, Then laid they their hands on them, and they received the Holy Ghost. So they got baptized in the Holy Ghost. You see the same thing in Acts chapter 10. Come over there. Acts chapter 10, Peter's preaching to Cornelius, the, the, uh, the centurion's house. It's a household full of Gentiles. Uh, Cornelius is a proselyte Jew. He fears God, but he's not born again. In fact, an angel appeared to uh, Cornelius and said, Go down to Joppa, which is a coastal city in Israel, to one Simon the Tanner and ask for a man named Peter and he will tell you words whereby ye and your whole household must be saved. So it's by words and the hearing of words that build a faith that allows salvation to come. 
So Peter has come and he's preached to them and he's not pulled punches. He starts off by saying, you know, it's not lawful for me to be here, right? That's how he starts his introduction. I'm prejudiced. You know that, right? And yet God still moved despite his ignorance. Verse 44, Acts 10, 44. While Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word. And they of the circumcision which believed were astonished as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then answered Peter, Can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then prayed they him to tarry certain days. We have salvation process totally out of order here. Apparently they got born again while the word was preached because you can't get spirit filled without being born again. But while the word is being preached, apparently their hearts say, we believe this, we believe this, we believe this. And while their hearts are saying, we believe this, the Holy Ghost falls on them and they start speaking in tongues. And it shocks Peter because Gentiles aren't supposed to get this. They can't be saved. They can't be saved. They can't be saved. But what was one of the evidences of salvation? They're speaking in tongues. And then he says, well, they got to be baptized now. But it's out of order. It's not the order that we've seen so far is what I mean. Born again, water baptism, baptism of the Holy Ghost. But the Lord did it this way to show Peter that the Gentiles can be saved. Now, if you don't speak in tongues, it doesn't mean you're not saved. So please don't hear that. We are not of that hardcore religious Pentecostal doctrine because there are some Pentecostals that say if you don't speak in tongues, you're going to hell. I'm, I'm not convinced speaking in tongues will get you into heaven. A heart right towards God enduring to the end, never denying Christ. That'll get you into heaven. But we see an evidence here that they were saved because the Holy Ghost was poured out on them. These are just the evidences. Acts chapter 19, we already covered this, but let's turn there one more time. And then we'll look at the last baptism, which is everybody's favorite, which is not true if you know what the last baptism is. Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 7. We just covered this. They came to uh, the upper coast of Ephesus and finding certain apostles or disciples. They said in them, have you received the Holy Ghost? No, we didn't know there was one. Unto what were you baptized? John. John's baptism. All right, let's get you baptized in the name of Jesus. So they're born again. They're water baptized. Then Paul lays his hands on them and they receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost. To me, it's as clear as day. And yet Christians will fight that it isn't for today or that it isn't even there. Some denominations refer to it as a second blessing, as in there's something in God subsequent to salvation, and with that I agree. Because all of these we could have stopped. They wouldn't have had to receive the Holy Ghost, so they still would have been born again and water baptized. Peter and John didn't have to lay hands on the Samaritans. Paul doesn't have to lay hands on these Ephesians, and they can still be born again and water baptized. But in those instances... They got hands laid on them, and the baptism of the Holy Ghost took place, and the evidence every time was speaking in tongues. For those of us that are here, I mean, this is me preaching to the choir. We're Pentecostals. We get it. We pray in tongues. My kids pray in tongues. But it's important to understand this. This is an event that occurs four times throughout the book of Acts. This is a doctrine that I could probably show you upwards of 120 scriptures to support it and to establish it. When it comes to water baptism, we have about 20 scriptures, 21, 22. This is an important doctrine. I have not found any doctrines more divisive or attacked by the enemy than tongues. 
except for maybe healing, which to me is really stupid because why would you not want to be healed? You believe the doctor can heal you, but not God. So you won't pray for God to heal you, but you'll go to the emergency room ASAP. So that knuckleheaded syndrome aside, I find no other doctrine more divisive or attacked by the enemy than the baptism of the Holy Ghost because when you pray in tongues, you intercede for yourself according to Romans chapter 8. And when you pray in tongues, you speak mysteries. And when you pray in tongues, you give thanks well. And when you pray in tongues, you declare the glorious works of God. And when you pray in tongues, you don't have to understand everything you're praying. When you pray in tongues, you speaketh unto no man, for no man understands him. How be it in the Spirit, he speaks mysteries. I would fight it too if I was the enemy. And I would also say that if I was a Christian and I was bold enough to say I want everything God has for me, tongues would be on that list. Because even Paul said, I would to God, you all spoke in tongues. Well, if Paul wanted me to, I should want me to as well. Most of us pray in tongues, so I'm just preaching to the choir. But you ought to be able to communicate these truths to your friends and get them spirit-filled. Easily. Last baptism. The one we will all cheer and run a Pentecostal lap on. (laughs) Mark chapter 10. Let's throw this up in the New Living Translation. Mark chapter 10. This is the one. Let's go verse 35. Mark 10, 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came over and spoke to Jesus. Teacher, we want you to do us a favor. This is not going to go well, by the way. Verse 36. What is your request? He asked. Next verse. They replied, when you sit on your glorious throne, we want to sit in places of honor next to you. One on your right and the other on your left. The only problem is on his left is going to, on his left's going to be God the Father because the Lord's sitting at the right hand of the Father. So they don't even know what they're asking. Verse 38. Jesus said to them, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I'm about to drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism of suffering I must be baptized with? Verse 39. Oh, Yes. This is where they should have just been quiet. When the Lord said, you don't know what you're talking about, that's when you shut up. Oh, yes, they said, we are able to drink the bitter cup of martyrdom. And they all fulfilled it but John. You can have what you say. (laughs) Be careful what you ask for. And the baptism of suffering. We are able. Then Jesus told them, you will indeed drink from my bitter cup. And you will be baptized with my baptism of suffering. Stop. Our fifth and final New Testament baptism, which the Church of Christ don't seem to want to touch with a 10-foot pole, neither do word of fake people, is this baptism of suffering. In this life, you will have persecution. You will have affliction. But be of good cheer. I've overcome this world. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.12 says that all those who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. We are submerged in it. At least we should be. And I honestly think the cleaner our robe of righteousness is, or I should say the holier we live, the more we'll be baptized into persecution. We ought to be preparing for it. One of the great complaints I hear right now from pastors, great generals of the faith, um, even some believers, is that they recognize we're not being prepared for the persecution that's coming. Because churches still want TED Talk, 
Churches still want light shows. They still want worship that looks more like Nirvana unplugged. They still want a coffee bar and a nacho bar and a bagel bar in their services. They don't want to be prepared for the coming persecution. They don't want to be baptized with the baptism of affliction. But it's here in the earth. It's uh, uh, Bishop Paul Emmanuel, or Emmanuel Paul, the Indian brother who comes and visits us. He's going back to India now. He showed me a video. He said, please pray for the Indian churches. He's always showed me horrible persecution that just makes my heart sick. But he showed me in one of the northern Indian provinces, the radical Hindus were burning churches, just looting them, not to steal from them, to destroy their pews in the streets, to destroy their speaker system in the streets, burning pastors' homes, and the police there helping them. That's our brothers and sisters in Christ. And you think the police are mean to you because you're black? Not in this town, they're not. You got Indians, Hindu cops, helping mobs torch churches, kill Christians, run them out of town because they don't want them to be preaching Jesus Christ. This cup of suffering, our brothers and sisters around the world already drink from it. And we're belly aching about the U.S. of A. Well, I mean, we, we, are, we are worse than spoiled brats. We're worse than the cheerleader wanting the canary yellow BMW for her 16th. God, God the Father ought to just give you a moped the rest of your life so you can smell like two-cycle engine oil everywhere you go. Huh, not even a real gas engine, just two-cycle engine oil, two-stroke engine. We're really pretty lame here in this nation. My job as a pastor is to toughen you up so you don't bend your knee to denying Christ, that you look at your boss and say, I'm not signing that pro-LGBTQ contract. Well, then I have to fire you. Fire me. I was looking for a job when God gave me this one. Because <laughs> there'll come a time you folks will lo we'll lose our jobs because we refuse to bend our knee to the, the woke acronym mafia. Not because we hate anybody, but because homosexuality is an abomination. Sodomy is not natural. When most homosexual men have to wear diapers because their anus leaks, that's not natural. Why do you want me to act like it is? And I have to sign a contract to work on your corporation because you guys are woke? Sorry, then we have to let you go. Let me go. Fire me for insubordination so I don't get workman's comp or workman's whatever. I'm not going to sign it. You guys have got to be prepared because this world hates us. Jesus Christ said, if they hate me, they are going to hate you. And be careful if they speak all manner of good about you. We have got to toughen up, church. This baptism of afflictions is part of our calling. You can believe you don't receive it all you want, but it's still, still going to come to you. You got to be bold because this is, we've already watched in the last 10 years, so many Christians and denominations deny Christ over social media peer pressure. When there was no mob with pitchforks and torches, they denied Christ to keep their social media standing. Well, we already lost that wave of cowards, so now the, the pressure ramps up one step. Where's your threshold? Will it be found in prison or over a paycheck? Because remember, Jesus Christ said, except those days be shortened, no flesh would be saved. It's going to get worse. We're not saving our nation. Because I can't even convince all of you to come to church three times a week. 
Don't fear losing your standard of living. It's already gone. Fear losing God's favor. We got to draw closer to Jesus Christ. He's the only hope we've got. He's the only peace we've got. He's the only protection and defense we've got. And they're not, we're not going to have a revival if folks aren't desperate and hungry. And I don't see the American church desperate yet. No, we're not desperate yet. We still want to serve God at our own pace. And he's telling us to run faster. Amen. So there are your five. John's baptism, baptism into Christ, baptism into water, baptism in the Holy Ghost, baptism into persecution and affliction. The one that does not apply to us is John's baptism. The other four are ours to embrace. And if you're not baptized in the Holy Ghost, you can be. And if you've never been water baptized, you need to be. And don't worry about the affliction. It'll find you soon enough. If you haven't already experienced some of it. Amen.